Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you like this podcast, you will love my new anthology called Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. Check it out, and you'll hear from 49 authors about all sorts of things moms don't have time to do. All the authors have been on this podcast. Also, check out my TikTok, at with Zibby and Tracy, my other podcast, Sex Talk with Zibby and Tracy. Check out Moms Don't Have Time to Write on Medium. And of course, my new publishing company called Zibby Books. And now back to our daily author interview site and a quick hello from some of my kids. Hi. Hi. Hello. Enjoy the show. David Damrosh is the author of Around the World in 80 Books. David is the Ernest Birnbaum Professor of Comparative Literature and Chair of Comparative Literature at Harvard University and Director of Harvard's Institute for World Literature. He is the author or editor of 25 books, including What is World Literature?, The Buried Book, Comparing the Literatures, and the six-volume Longman Anthology of World Literature. He has lectured in 50 countries around the world, and his online Harvard course, Masterpieces of World Literature, has been taken by nearly 100,000 people. Wow. Welcome, David. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss Around the World in 80 Books. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. First of all, I love the sort of genius inspiration for how you picked these books and the whole Jules Verne 
structure of it, how it started in COVID, how you started it online, and how you brought it to be this book in book form as well. So I was hoping you could just quickly touch on that. And then I would love to maybe delve into a couple of the places that you visited that I found particularly interesting. Absolutely. Okay. Yes, so I had this idea a few years ago to do a book for a general audience about world literature, which I've written about a lot and taught uh, for academic circles, but thinking how to bring a wider audience to the excitement of all of the great works we have now. It seemed to me that the narrative thread would be this going around the world in 80 books. It seemed about the great volume of number of books uh, to look at and sort of the idea then crystallized with COVID that uh, since I couldn't travel, I, I had thought I'd do the book as a connected to a series of places I've been and was going to, but then all these conferences got canceled, Tokyo and Europe, around the world. So I thought, well, I can't do it after all. But then I thought, well, I have the books. And so I can go around the world with these books. So then I organized it as 16 chapters, which in the summer before last was 16 weeks, five books a day, five days a week. I mean, five, one book per day, five days a week, leaving the weekends free to have a kind of fiction of some break in this time that was all falling in on itself. And it was quite an experience doing it in that very concentrated way. The challenge, not just to write 1,500 words a day, but every day a different book to shift gears. But it also meant that everything was there in my mind at the same time. And it really made it much more connected and much more conversational in the blog form that, that certainly the book is still there. I would have these interactions with readers around the world and it changed the shape of the book. For example, Rabindranath Tagore is in the book. He wasn't going to be there. But then one of my followers in, in Delhi said, that, how can you come to India and not have Tagore? So we have Tagore. <laughs> well, I think calling it like even der- derivative of a blog is, it, it makes it seem less academic or less, I mean, it's so polished. I felt, you know, it's been a while since I've been in school and I miss school. I loved school. So this book made me feel like I took this mini course. Like you're very accessible in the way you write, right? Like your your tone and you, it's not so heavy handed that you feel like you can't understand even if you're just, you know, in the midst of busy life. And yet it's this new sort of academic and yet, I, I don't know, just very fresh approach to analyzing literature, I guess is what I'm trying to say, but not very well, obviously, this morning. Anyway, all to say, I I got through this and I was like, I feel like I just took a class and I didn't have to go anywhere. And not only did I take a class, but I got to travel the world and learn a little bit about every place I already thought I knew a little bit about. And so I found it just really amazing and refreshing and have so much respect for you and your whole career to date. And I was like, okay, well, here we go. Time to well, go to class. Thank you so much. <laughs> and I will say that the blog firm, it was both more conversational and kind of more relaxed, also more visual because online. So I had a lot of illustrations and I kept doing this. We have 80 illustrations uh, along with the 80 books or actually 81 because there's an epilogue about the 81st book, uh, but also having just the half a day to write and the 1500 words, it made me, it, I had to just decide what's really essential. What did I really want to show? What key scene, what key moment, what verses, and then what key connections to other works in that chapter and other chapters. Uh, so it really focused and also relaxed the book a lot. Interesting. So you start the journey in London and we As go did through... Phileas Fogg, uh, of course, yeah. uh, in Round the World in Eight Days, and then you have to come back at the end, uh, just by the very last Day. And he makes it 
you know, he's around the world in 80 days. He thinks he's missed it by a day because he gets he's, well, he's delayed. But then he discovers because the international dateline, he's gained a day. And he comes in 8.45 in the evening, five, five, five minutes before he'd promised to be back. Uh, and so on the 80th day, I actually posted my last posting at that time of day, Greenwich Mean Time, uh, to, to match uh, his, uh, his model. Wow. <laughs> you, don't, you don't miss a detail here. <laughs> You start in London, and then I found some of the the chapter about that d- delves into the Holocaust and your own family history. So, when you, chapter three is Krakow after Auschwitz, so tell listeners a little bit about your now was it your great great grandfather, your That's great right. great grandfather Leopold Damrosch, and his violin career, and then all of these amazing. Authors. I mean, I learned more about Prima Levi here than I had known. Okay. Anyway, all right. Tell. Let's one thing at a time. I'm very excited. If you can't tell, <laughs> talk about your own family history and how you almost, as you so profoundly say in the book, you know, we almost weren't having this conversation today That's had right. your family That's not right. left where they were. It was one of the things that emerged increasingly as the book went on. Is I decided it's rather it's a very personal book. It's partly kind of a memoir of a life of reading. But also I wanted to just use examples of how literature feeds into our own lives and how it's reflected, how we read is reflected by what's going on in our life, what's happened in our lives and personal histories, family histories came in. And I so I'd started with very upbeat chapters in, in London and, and Paris by and large, though the Paris chapter, each one leads into the next. So the last Paris book is George Perak, the son of Polish emigres who died in World War II, and he's trying to reconstruct that. So then we go to Krakow, and one of my followers on the blog said, oh, so dark, so soon. <laughs> uh, but it actually was important to think that literature is, is both uplifting and invigorating and, and deals with the traumas uh, of life. And we connect to the struggles we've gone through, or do we know people have gone through, our families have gone through. So in the case of, of Poland, I was giving a talk to the Conrad Festival there, and my great-great-grandfather had was this uh, German-Jewish musician in what was then German territory. In the, He was born in 1832. He leaves in 1850 to go to medical school in Berlin. He's a good son. He's going to do a proper profession like his dad wants him to do. But then he really wants to be a violinist. Uh, and he uh, finishes a medical degree and doesn't do another thing with medicine, uh, becomes a violinist, becomes a Franz Liszt's uh, first violinist. Liszt was the godfather for my great-grandfather, Franz Jr., Frank, as he became in the U.S., uh, but but then he's kind of a glass ceiling. He feels he's not getting anywhere in his career, and, and he moves to the United States. So I'm going back. It's the first time in Poland, and, I, and my hosts are, take me to to around in Poznan, where he'd grown up. And and amazingly, there were still they found the gymnasium records, the high school records, with the addresses, and you could see where he'd lived. We went to these places; they, they were still there. And I was thinking, boy, gee, wouldn't it be nice? The beautiful old town. Suppose he'd never left. And of course, I know that generations later, it would have been a whole different family, but my own father was named Leopold after this very same Leopold. So I was imagining, suppose I'd been there, reading Conrad in Polish translation, eating sausages instead of Big Macs growing up. But then after Poznan, my host drive me on to, to Krakow, and on the way to South St. Town, we come to the sign for Auschwitz. I thought, we'd never left, that's where it would have been. And that then leads into the discussion of these Holocaust based things, and also these, you know, fantastic Nobel Prize winner, poet Czesław Milos, reflecting back on his own past and memory and survival and, you know, making it all uh, into, into art. Wow. 
Beautiful. I actually loved how you how you brought in your own family history, even your trips with your wife, Lori, I think. I feel like yes, she's like yes. such a great character in this book. It just like pops in and out. So <laughs> I yeah. loved how you wrote with her about and, her. And uh, our three kids, each one makes an appearance uh, in the yes. course of the book. Uh, so we're very sympathetic that if moms have trouble finding, dads also have trouble finding time uh, to read, I, I must say. I have thought about starting a dad's podcast as well, but <laughs> I just haven't gotten there yet. I've been trying to get my husband to do it. But yeah, know. exactly. But he doesn't have time. <laughs> but he doesn't have time. Yeah, exactly. I think he'd rather do a sports podcast than a book podcast, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, the way you trace through these authors, through Kafka and anti-Semitism and the cultural political trends in Europe and everything that was going on and you know the po- these poems that you included here were just beautiful. I mean, even, can I just read one of these poems? This is by, do you pronounce it Ceylon? Ceylon? Ceylon. Either Ceylon or Ceylon if you use a Romanian pronunciation or a German pronunciation. Yeah. I'm going to go Ceylon because I don't know. I, I have like German roots somewhere. Okay. Black milk of daybreak. We drink it at evening. We drink it at midday and morning. We drink it at night. We drink and we drink. We shovel a grave in the air where you won't lie too cramped. And then it ends with death, a master in Germany shooting a woman. He shoots you with shot made of lead, shoots you level and true. A man lives in the house, your goldenest har Margaret. He looses his hounds on us, grants us a grave in the air. He plays with his vipers and daydreams. Der Todd ist ein Meister aus Deutschland. Meister. Meister aus Deutschland. Deutschland. Okay, well, maybe I shouldn't have read that. But anyway, these beautiful poems. And then it goes to shorter and shorter, and you sort of track the evolution of Ceylon's writing as it becomes more sparse until his eventual depression and hospitalization before suicide at age 50, which is awful. The shofar place deep in the glowing text void at torch height in the time hole, here deep in with your mouth. I mean, these are, I was, I, they're chilling. These passages are seriously just chilling. Like, how do you feel going through them again? And how did you even figure out which little pieces to to pick and include and move us with? That's such an interesting, was challenging for me because it's, I'm much more used to spending, having 50 pages to talk about an author in a chapter or an hour or three hours in a classroom, and now just 1,500 words, 1,600 words, equivalent of five pages, 10 minutes. It really enforces to get to what really matters the most. That poem that you read by Jalan is, is probably his most famous, his single most famous poem, and it relates to these themes. And then it will, I'm finding things that will connect up. A lot of the pleasure of doing the book was finding things that unexpected connections back and forth, uh, someone referring to somebody else. I thought, oh, wait a minute, Virginia Woolf, I remember she wrote some essay on Dickens. I hadn't looked at it in years. And then I find this fantastic, interesting essay on Dickens that makes a connection like that. So those things that will that will really work. Or or with Proust, what I found I loved in teaching with the famous episode of the Petite Madeleine, they dips this little beautiful cookie in, and he makes this whole mythology around it that's feminine, that's moist, it's round, it's like a seashell, it's like the town he lives in, all of these things. But the original version they first wrote, it's just autobiographical, it's a piece of toast. I think, now what happens when a piece of toast becomes a bit of motherland? So it seems to me like a moment like that just gives you the essence of a writer and, and, and of an experience. Wow. Yes, I remember reading about the Madeleine in, in college during my literature classes. And anyway, I think of that, of course, whenever now in a cup of coffee at a nice restaurant where they sometimes have these little things like, okay. anyway. 
You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes we all have stuff we need to get off our chests. Even if we don't think it's interfering with our daily life, there are some things you just haven't processed be it grief or trauma, eating disorders, anything, it might be time to work on those things. And I have a solution for you. Therapy. Online therapy by BetterHelp. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I took the brief questionnaire online where there were, I don't know, 20 questions. It didn't take long at all, maybe three minutes. And then I got matched with a therapist who could help me work on whatever. I picked trauma because... Even though it happened in 2001, I am somehow still not over the loss of my friend on 9-11. And it is what it is. BetterHelp is going to help, and I am so excited, especially because with my special code, instead of $80 a month, it is 10% off, $72 a month, which is so much less than traditional therapy, and you'll get a perfect therapist for you. There are 35,000 therapists to choose from, so you'll find the right one. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash moms don't have time today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash moms don't have time. So then you continue taking us through the world, all through you know Mexico, Beijing, Bar Harbor. And then I was very excited to get to the New York chapter, which is where I am right now. Uh-huh. And to hear about you know, Saul Steinberg and how you analyze the drawings and back to what you were saying about the visual. And, and James Baldwin and how he went back to Paris and his writing and Tolkien. And I mean, I don't, this is like such a, a, a full, robust experience. So take us through a little bit through New York. Yes. Yeah, so I, my last chapter is in, in New York. My next last chapter, as I mentioned, Bar Harbor, Maine, which I was born and I thought, you know, once uh, by the end of the book, people get to to know me a little bit and and bring the personal out a bit a bit more. So, and in in Maine, it's it's my first encounter with literature as a kid, and to me, it's very important that what we read as children sets the whole tone for us. And certainly, anyone who's read to their own kids, and indeed, I read the entire Lord of the Rings to our kids when they were they were little, and a very meaningful, moving experience. For, I would say for all of us. And with New York, so we moved there when I was 10 and my whole adolescence was there. And that's when I first met actual professional writers. Mother Lengel was a parishioner of my father's in his, in his church, and she just published a wrinkle in time. And sort of encountering these people in both Steinberg and also Saul Bellow, I met through a high school English teacher of mine who knew them both. And she becomes a kind of a fairy tale donor figure in the course of, of the book. And 
you know, it's discovering this cosmopolitan world, discovering the world in New York, and how many, it's a migrant world, of course. I had myself come to New York from, from away, as we say, in Maine, from away, meaning anywhere off Mount Desert Island, and sort of coming to a sense of, of this world. So then I end with Tolkien to, to, as the way to come back uh, to, to England at the very end, following Phileas Fogg. Uh, and Tolkien, to me, is a fantastically interesting writer who was so important to me. As, as I probably read it 10 times as a teenager, but I teach him now. I teach him very differently as the last of the great World War I poets, which might not be how one would think of him. But he was in the trenches in World War I, and almost all of his friends died. He just was lucky he was wounded and invalided back back out. So these kinds of experience and how they figure into this fantasy world and how reality comes into fantasy, it's sort of the very epitome of, of the book as a whole. And you applied that also to Madeline Lingle and how she had this very isolated childhood yeah. and how she kept trying to write about it and get, getting rejected, which I didn't even know that story. Ten and whole tried years, to kept, yeah. Yeah, selling and selling until finally she writes this fantasy and that sells. And how she says that kids understand some of these things way faster and you have this whole yes. diagram and that you don't need to over explain it right like kids pick up on fantasy immediately which i also found fascinating because of course she becomes i don't know one of the greats of all time anyway exactly no and i think that's i mean i think probably i think we should all remain in close touch with our childhood selves and that sense of adventure and exploration is so important and, and this book is is a very childlike book in that in that respect. Just, just the pleasure of, of discovery. It's funny. I wrote this memoir that's coming out in July called Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature. Ah. And in it, I go through like 200 books, 200 plus books that wow. for me were important because I don't know about you. Like I, whenever I think of a moment, happy, sad, whatever, like I, I know what I was reading and yep. where I was and which book meant a lot to me. And some of it's just random, right? I just happened to be reading it at the time, but it will forever be etched in my memory yeah. with that time. So yeah, mine was far less academic, far less intellectual, but, <laughs> but still a journey of a life through books because yeah. books for so many of us are so essential that they, there are companions as we go through life. And that's why I particularly appreciated this sort of deep dive into your reading world. And even though it's much more highbrow literary, <laughs> perhaps. Well, you know, I also have detective stories, uh, several of them, Donna Leon in, in Venice and Troy Mashani in, in Israel, Sherlock Holmes. Uh, it's as much a part of our experience of literature as, as anything else. And I'm interested in this in this very fluid boundary between the, the elite and the popular. Orhan Pamuk was one of my my eighty authors, um, he deliberately modeled a lot of his books on detective stories because that's the way to reach a world audience. Mm -hmm. Very true. And so when you read for fun, like when you're not analyzing or doing this type of investigation and analysis and whatever, what do you want? Like, what do you like to read? Like, what are you reading tonight when you go? To, like, when do you read? Like, do you read before bed or like, what's your pleasure reading schedule? Like, usually, usually at night. I'm reading a, a, uh, a Dutch novel now that was just sent to me. Uh, there's a great press called Archipelago Books, if you're interested in really cool stuff. Archipelago Books, based in Brooklyn. And they, they do beautiful little editions of translations of things that you've probably never heard of. They they did very well because they picked up on Karl Ovid Knausgaard's My Struggle. Uh, they become his American publisher, and this has helped float a lot of their other publications. But so I'm reading a Dutch novel from mid-century called The Guardian Angel Remembers. It's a very ironic, uh, satiric thing set at the as, at the time of the German invasion of, of World War uh, of, of the of Netherlands in World War II, and that 
that's for fun. It, it happens also. I'm teaching in a course now on the philosopher and the tyrant, which ends up with Hitler and Heidegger and Hannah Arendt. And I just, just read another Hitler biography, read several. So that was not exactly fun, but but absolutely fascinating. And now that this this satirical novel is a fun way of thinking about these troubled times. You wrote a lot about translation in this book and and the merits of reading work in translation and how to do that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, when I was growing up in the pre-modern era as a student in the 70s, in my field of comparative literature, you weren't supposed to use translation. You're supposed to just learn languages and only read in the original which is a great idea, but it means you can't read very many works around the world. I mean, I certainly spent more than my share of time studying a dozen or so languages, but there's a lot more languages out there than those few. Like I've never studied Dutch, for example. Am I going to never read any Dutch literature because I haven't had the time to study Dutch? Well, no. And it didn't stop you know, Shakespeare from, from reading Virgil and, and Homer and learning a lot uh, from them, or Derek Walcott from reading Homer and Virgil and Dante in translation. We're in a golden age of translation right now. And there's so many good translations being, being brought out, translations and retranslations of so many books. The Tale of Genji, the great Heian masterpiece from Murasaki Shikibu, has now had four full translations in English in the last few decades, each one better than the last. It's an amazing, amazing time. Amazing. Do you have particular translators or one translation that you have found? Like, or have you ever been tempted with your languages to translate yourself? Well, in fact, uh, there is one of my 80 books I have just translated, fantastic Congolese novel written in French in the 70s. It's called Jean-Baptiste Vico, Le Viol du Discours Africain. Uh, Jean-Baptiste Vico, or The Rape of African Discourse. And Vico is not the Italian philosopher of a similar name, but he is a kind of self-promoting African intellectual who wants to write the great African novels so that he can be invited to conferences in Paris and Rome. And this hilarious academic satire, basically, of, of this, and it's very complicated, I mean, a cultural situation, and it's a satire on the Mobutu regime, is slightly in disguise, because you couldn't quite say that openly, but it was never translated, published in 1975. It didn't really serve anybody's interests because it was satirizing both the Westernizers and the Afrocentrists and the politics. Uh, and about 15 years ago, I was saying, well, world literature will really have grown up when a work like this can be can be translated and read. So I decided finally to put my time where my mouth is, and I translate it. It's just coming out uh, next month uh, in a dual language edition, so it'll be available in French uh, and in English. But translations have been very important. I, I've only read uh, Tale of Genji in, in translation because I don't uh, read Japanese. And even in French, let's say, Moncrief's translation of Proust is amazingly good. And I've taught, taught it in French and I teach it in English. And I'm, in a way, as, as happy with the English translation. It's, it's just beautiful. Uh, and Moncrief has a, has a feel for the flow of those sentences. And that's what matters so much. Is there anything you look for in a student? I know you've been teaching a long time. What is there a student? Is there some, some spark or something that you see in a student and you're like, this is this is why I do this. Something like that. Have you had an experience like that? Oh, that's the great pleasure of teaching for sure. Is finding those finding those students uh, and students with just an open ended curiosity. And I'm particularly happy to find students who just have an ear for language. Uh, I think there, there's lots of academics who go into literature because oh, I don't know, it didn't work out for them in philosophy or sociology. And they're interested in, in great ideas, and ideas are wonderful. But in, in literature, what brings it to life is, is the music of the language. 
so, so, and this may be because I have these musical ancestors, but to me, as someone who has an ear, uh, it's the single most important thing. Interesting. That's beautiful. Do you have any advice for aspiring authors? I took as a high school student a couple of writing courses from Madeline Lengel, who was a parent in our school, our little parochial school in the Upper West Side. And she was really emphasizing always involve all the senses, really pay attention to how things are smelling and, and, and how things are sounding and, and, and to touch. I thought that was that was very good advice. And I think also, I mean, I'm not so much the one who says, write what you know, which is often said, because I'm also interested in, say, Tolkien. I uh, never, never met a hobbit. Uh, he didn't know what a hobbit was. I mean, he just comes up, with, uh, he's creating a term paper, and he writes in the margins, in a hole in the ground to live the hobbit. He says, now, why did I write that? What is a hobbit? Right Now, of course, he is also writing what he knows, because the hobbits are sort of like little Englishmen, and it's his world, but it's also this whole other world. And so I myself think that maybe too much American literature is has been rather parochial and written just to to satisfy an Iowa writing school kind of inbred curriculum. And what's very nice now is how, how open we're becoming to the wider world. I feel like the stories published in The New Yorker, at least half of them are translated from all over the world. And I think this is a wonderful thing. So I think just reading, following your nose, reading what's most exciting to you and thinking, okay, now I could do something like that, but how do I want to do it differently? Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you for your wonderful book for the for the tour of the world and for talking a lot a little bit more about it to me today. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. And I look forward to your book. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.